I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 15. After break in a couple of weeks, we come back to this portion of God's Word. And we begin the reading this morning with verse 12, and I'll read down to verse 16. Our Lord Jesus says to His disciples in this farewell discourse, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to look at this portion of your word, we pray that you give us wisdom and understanding as its intentions, as the things our Lord has declared. We would receive your word with meekness of heart and mind, and we would walk in its light. So look upon us with your favor, grant us the help of your spirit, as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In our studies in this farewell discourse, we've noted in the first 11 verses of chapter 15 that the key concerns have to do with this imagery or this allegory of the vine. That Jesus declares himself to be the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser or the gardener, and um, his people, his believers, his disciples, they are the branches and there's much instruction that's given with respect to this union we have with Christ through faith that brings us into a relationship with him that's likened unto a branch drawing its life from the vine so we draw our life from him but it might seem that the paragraph that I read following verse 11 and verse 12 and following that we're introduced to a wholly different world of ideas a wholly new theme in this farewell discourse that Jesus has moved on from this allegorical speaking of himself as the vine, the father as the gardener, the people as the branches, and he's going back to the new commandment of love that he gave in chapter 13. That seems to accord far more with what we read in chapter 13 in verse 34, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And so what he calls a a new commandment in 1334, he now just asserts that this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so everything really resolves around the subject of love. But the reality is, I think, that is at least upon closer inspection of the passage, that this teaching about love is to be seen in close proximity to what he's taught us already about being vitally attached to Jesus as to the source of all capability to bear fruit unto God. Again, at the end of chapter, uh, verse 16, that note of fruit again is 
is sounded. You did not choose me, verse 16 says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The whole end of abiding in the vine is that we would bear fruit, that we would bear fruit unto God. And that's not just other disciples, that's the moral fruits of righteousness that we're called to walk in. It's the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of righteousness that we're called to, 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 uh, to embrace and to follow and to um, have a determinative of our thoughts and our actions and our ambitions and our desires to live in the paths that please the God who has brought us into life union with himself through faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this this commonality, and then we have fruit in the first paragraph, we have fruit in the final paragraph, but we also have love in the first paragraph. In the words of verse um, 9, Jesus says, As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There's a call to abide in love. Abiding in Christ is to abide in love. And again, if you have my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. And so, there is not a new subject here. This follows closely upon the heels of everything our Lord Jesus has already said. And we must, I believe, conclude that this imagery of the vine and the branches does in fact picture the Christian life as a communion of love. We by faith enter into the love that the Father has to the Son. And we ourselves are embraced in the love of the triune God. We are the recipients of that love and we're called to abide in that love and in the abiding of that love there will be the keeping of the commandments the summary of which is to love. To love God and to love our neighbor and even to love our enemies. And even as Jesus says in chapter 13, this new commandment, that we're to love the brotherhood. Jesus is establishing his church. And the church consists in those who are spiritually united to him by faith. And we're also to be united to one another. We are united to one another. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. We've made to drink the same spiritual drink and eat the same spiritual food. Um, we follow the same Lord. We are um, bound to Him and to one another in the bonds of faith and in the bonds of a relationship in which a communion of love has been established. Jesus has come to form His church to form a new people, to form a new society, a new Israel, in which the love of God has been fully revealed in the way that the Father has manifested His love in the giving of His Son, in the way the Son has manifested His love towards His children and towards His disciples, and then is also the way in which the people who are attached to Him are called upon to manifest the love of God and the love of Christ to one another. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. And this love to one another is never detached from these greater loves. The love of the Father to the Son, the love of the Son to His people. Uh, What we are to be to one another is really rooted in the relationship of the persons in the Godhead to one another and the relationship of the triune God to us as His people. 
So I want to approach this paragraph from that vantage point and see that in this paragraph we have those aspects of greater love that is displayed in that uh, even precedes the commandment to love one another. Yeah, the commandment to love one another is there, but it's rooted in these greater loves that the passage points us to. And so to set us out to you, I'd like to first of all begin by looking at what uh, is really the electing love of God. Uh, I, you have not ch- did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you in verse 16. And then there is exemplary love. The love that he says is greater than no man can have than this. That someone laid down his life for his friends. And then Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He's connecting this call, the sacrificial love, not just in terms of what we do for one another. We're to be willing to do that for one another, but that's based upon what he's done for us. We are his friends. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has laid down his life for his friends. As we sang in the hymn, this is boundless love indeed. Jesus is a friend indeed. This is boundless love. Greater love has no man than this, that Jesus laid down his life for his friends. And hence we are to lay down our lives for one another. And then in the third place, there is this intimate love. Not only redemptive love and exemplary love, love that's been manifest in the death that Jesus died for us, but also in the life of Jesus, there is this intimate love to his disciples. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. And so before we begin the love we're to show to one another, this passage does call us also to consider... The love that elected us, the love that is exemplified for us in the death of Christ for our sins, the intimate love our Savior has to us, and that He calls us not just servants, but friends. And then finally, there is that inclusive love, where every one of God's people is called to a community of love, to engage in acts of love to one another in the body of Christ, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we begin. By looking at the roots of love, the roots of love that's found in the love of the triune God, it's a love that's gratuitous love. It has nothing to do with our merit. It has nothing to do with anything we've deserved. In fact, what we deserve is just the opposite of love. We deserve divine wrath, divine judgment for our sins. And yet in the place of the judgment our sin deserves, God has provided this love that is testified in scripture is something that goes back into the deepest recesses of the eternal mind God's counsel, God's purpose you did not choose me but I have chosen you. Now don't believe Jesus is just saying well I was the one that went by the sea of Galilee, I saw you there and I called you to come and follow me I think he's reflecting something of not just his earthly call but the fact that these are people that have come to follow him now this is in accordance with the plan that was made really scripture tells us eternally the very notion of an electing God I know it seems repulsive to many in the world today and even in the church today 
Uh, we tend to take um, the doctrines of Scripture and we filter them through our own sense of sensibilities and how things make us feel. And we kind of feel as if this matter of election uh, just kind of is maybe not a little bit fair, not a little just, not equitable. And we conclude that any talk of election is, is just detrimental to all the things we value as Americans. Everybody should have a, an equal play in this whole thing, and uh, anyone should not should not be uh, uh, lifted up above anyone else. Well, in reality, no, none of us do. We're all leveled in our sin. We're all leveled in our worthy to be worthiness to be judged. It's God who does, in fact, make a difference in a world of rebellious sinners who have no love for him, no desire for him, they're all after their own things. God has intervened in human history with a plan and a purpose. A plan and a purpose that has involved all who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that comprise a group of people that are called his elect people. And however election is understood, one thing is crystal clear is perfectly consistent with the highest notions of justice, is perfectly consistent with the highest ideas of equity and of fairness, and it's also consistent with the highest notions of love that we can ever imagine. In fact, often when Scripture teaches us about this whole question of divine election, it's couched in the context of love. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Interesting to turn to Jeremiah. But it's a book we're studying in the evening, and it's a book that I'm making some progress in getting a grasp at my, on myself. And um, this is really a lead-up to a section of the letter that is called the Book of Consolation. Actually, it's chapter 30 and 31 comprise something of the Book of Consolation. And uh, in the first verse of chapter 31, it says, At that time declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says Yahweh, thus says the God of Israel, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. So he appeared to a people that have been um, surviving the judgment of the Babylonian captivity. They've come back, they've been restored uh, to the land. They've been restored to become uh, the people of God with the future. <laughs> this is the people among whom God is going to work. And when God appears to this people with whom the future is invested, the people whom he's brought back as the remnant people from Babylonian captivity, he says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. My love to you goes back to eternity. It goes back into timeless eternity in the heart and mind of a timeless eternal God. But God has set his love upon his people. When did it begin? It just always was. God had a plan and a purpose with respect to his people that is an eternal plan and purpose. And a purpose to redeem them. A purpose to make them survivors of the judgment he brought upon the nation from Babylon, and people for whom there is a future. There are people eternally loved by the living God. I think this John Newton says there was a woman in his congregation who came to him and said, God must have loved me from eternity because I've never done anything since that would warrant it. And that's probably a good way to look at it. God must have loved us from eternity because in the thing we've done to ever merit 
the love of God. It's totally free. It's totally unmerited. It's totally what God has determined and set his own heart upon for his reasons. And again, we can't peer into the mind and will of God in terms of why he did this and why he did that. None of that's disclosed to us. Just that God has plan and purpose and love drives it. Love is the driving issue and the plan and purpose of God to choose a people and to bring a people to know him, to bring a people to enter in to the joys of his grace and of his salvation. It's, it, again, we couldn't fathom his reasons if even he disclosed it to us. Again, we are but mortals and our understanding is but mortal and defiled by sin. And we think we can stand in judgment upon God's justice. Lord, we don't think you're just in doing this or that. Well, look at how unjust human beings are to one another. Look at our standards of justice, just in the way we live our lives, so self-absorbed and so self-centered. And we think we can stand in judgment upon God's decrees, and we can tell God what He ought to do and what would be best. We're just not in a position to do that. And it's just our pride that makes us think we're capable of it. We can't out-justice God. We can't out-wisdom God. We can't out grace God or mercy God or love God. God is the standard for all of these things. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 7. The seventh chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Again, here's a people that have been redeemed, brought on eagle's wings to the Lord and through the period of the wilderness, wanderings, the 40 years of judgment because of the sin of the people, the generation that did not believe and did not go into the land. Now they're primed to go into the land. And these words come from Moses to this people about to enter into the land, rehearsing God's dealings with them as a people and their responsibilities before the living God. He says in chapter 7 and verse 6, For you are a people, holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You didn't choose yourself. And God then says, okay, you guys chose yourself, so I'll kind of put an imprimatur, a ratification upon your choice. No, no. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You might think there was some distinguishing feature in Israel's life that made them to be choosable made them to be uh, proper for God to choose them. But God's careful to point out that it's not anything that they've done or could have done or did or were. No. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. It wasn't because you were so great and wonderful and you were so wise and you were so good. Other portions of the book of Deuteronomy, He says it was not for your righteousness. It was not for anything in you. Nothing you did, nothing you were. God is perfectly free. And what he does in the world for his wise and good and righteous and holy and just reasons. And God set his love upon you. Chose you for a people. Out of all the nations of the earth, you were loved. And you were blessed. Not because you were willing because God is merciful and gracious. Book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 4. You have it sounded again. It's love that's at the root 
of all of God's dealings, of all of God's purposes, of all of God's intentions, at the heart of it is His eternal, sovereign, unmerited, all-gracious, fully, fully compassionate love. Ephesians 4, back up to verse, uh, Ephesians 1 and verse 4, but back up to verse 3. And again, this is in the context of worship. This is in the context of a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, where did all this blessing begin? Well, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the goal. That's the intention, that we would be holy and blameless before him. But what's the root of it all? Where did it all begin? Well, again, it was before the foundation of the world and it was began in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons to Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, I don't profess to be able to tell you all the ins and outs of the counsel of the internal God. I'm a Buddha man, sinful man of time. I, I can't fathom those things. But God knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. And whatever we make about the Bible's teaching about election, it's clear. It's not the manifestation of injustice or unfairness or any such thing that people would seek to, seek to impugn upon it. But it's God's love. God's love. Love to us that began eons before any love in us ever returned love to God. It's not when our faith began. It's not when our obedience began. We have a hymn in our hymnal that speaks of the love of God, how strong and true, eternal, and yet ever new. That's just amazing to think about. Love of God that began in eternity. And yet it's as new as this very day. God's love is ever new. Ever coming to us again and again. Confirming the reality of his love. So hence we have no reason for pride. No reasons for self-congratulations. Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. My act of love has brought forth all that is done and accomplished in you and through you. That began with a love that is eternal. But not only so, the second thing I believe that's highlighted in the passage is that this love that we're called upon to show to one another actually is a love that is displayed not in us but in Him. In Jesus' exemplary, exemplary love. I'll get that word out. Exemplary. Webster defines exemplary as deserving imitation because of His excellence. Deserving imitation because of his excellence. Where's the excellence of love to be found? Where's the love that's worthy of imitation because of its excellence? Now clearly it's not our love to God. You want to measure our love to God as something worthy of everybody emulating you? Let's everybody emulate the way I love God. Please, no. The standard must be higher than that because my love is inconsistent. My love is failing. My love is on and off. My love is anything but worthy of emulation. Excellence of love is not found in me. Excellence of love is not found in you. 
excellency of love is not found in the church, but the excellency of love is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. The way I've loved you and the way I've cared for you and provided for you these years you disciples have followed me. The way I've taught you and had compassion upon you and been forbearing with you. All these ways Jesus has demonstrated his love. But the best is still to come. Because now Jesus tells them of a greater love than anything they've known up to this point. He says, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus is not just commending self-sacrifice, that we should sacrifice our lives for others. His clear intent is to cast light upon his own self-sacrifice for his people about to take place in Jerusalem. That's what this feral discourse is all about. He's leaving them. He's going to the Father's house in many mansions by way of the cross. He says, Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. You are my friends. It's my death that's to take central place, the central stage. It's my going to the cross to die for you. You are my friends, the very friends for whom I am now laying down my life. Scripture tells us God demonstrated His own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Here's excellency of love to be imitated. Deserving of imitation because it's love that no love can surpass. It's the all-surpassing love of Jesus Christ for his people. 1 John 4 and verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sin. See, our love is but responsive to his love to us. Our love is never the example. It's never the excellence seat of imitation. Our love is always marked by incompleteness and inconsistency. His love is always complete, always consistent, always continuous. It's never failing and never ending. It's at the cross we find a great demonstration of love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And even this love of Jesus is but part of a greater peace. It's a love that began in eternity. An everlasting, electing love. And it's the greatest expression of an ongoing reality. What began in eternity, what's made supremely manifest at the cross, continues in the greatness of the love with which he continues to love us, continues to care for us, continues to provide for us, so that we are brought not just into a legal or formal relationship to him, we're members of his church, we're members of his body, but, uh, you know, that's his membership. 
No, being members of His church and members of His body is to be loved of Him. It's to be brought into an intimate relationship of love. We're children of God. We're sons and daughters of God. We're fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God. We're made to be a temple of God in whom He is present in us and with us. You see, God's not content just to have a distant relationship with His redeemed people. And that brings us to the fourth of these matters of His love. Not only that it's eternal, electing love, not only is exemplary in the love that Christ has for us. Actually, this is the third thing I'm about to do. But the third thing is that it's intimate love. It's intimate love. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. Back in chapter 13, he says, you call me master and Lord, or teacher, Lord and teacher. And he says, and so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also you ought also to wash one another's feet. He is their Lord. He is their teacher. And he never stops being their Lord. He never stops being their teacher. But it's almost as if it's Jesus who takes the initiative to say, that's not enough. That's not enough that my relationship to my people should just be one of teacher to students. It's a more intimate relationship, not just of servants, but of friends. Now let's be clear about this. It never says to that uh, we are Jesus' friends. It says He is our friend. He is our friend. He's the Lord who undertakes to condescend to us and draw us into a more intimate bond with Himself in which He considers us to be His friends. He looks upon us not just as servants, but as friends. And again, Scripture gets more intimate in the fact that it's the wife of the Lord as He enters into the marriage covenant and relationship with us as His body bride. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it that He might sanctify it and wash it uh, that we might be appearing before God uh, um, as holy and without blemish. Uh, the pure virgin that Paul speaks about that's brought into unto God through Christ. There is this love that is like marital love. It's like the love that a father has to his sons. It's the love of family. It's the love in which Jesus calls himself brethren. He's a brother. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. And that he's not ashamed to call us friends as well. And so the initiative is with God. The initiative is with Christ. That this saving relationship that God provides for his people is not to be formal, is not to be distant, is to be a relationship of intimacy, of union and communion. That might appear to us it's a privilege to be his servants, and it is. And we're called servants in Scripture. It's a privilege to be fellow citizens with the saints and with the household of God. That's a great honor and privilege, and it is, and it's what we are. But again, as high a privilege and honor as those things are, God says, it's still not enough for me. 
He wants to make us sons and daughters and enter into marital love as a spouse. And He will make us friends. Closest, most intimate terms imaginable. And each one of these terms, which each one of these relationships of sons and daughters, of brothers, of marital love, of friends, each has an aspect of instruction for us as the people of God. And this friendship imagery has the instruction to tell us that God's intimate relationship of love to us is to be one of openness and one of transparency. Jesus' words are simply this. He says, The servant does not know what his master is doing. No need for a servant to know what his master is doing. Servant, you just do your work. Servant, you just do as you are told. Parents will say to the child, do as I say, not necessarily as I do, but do as I say, I'm the one in authority here, you do what I tell you to do. And of course, our classic response was always, why? And my parents, their classic response to me was, um, because I said so. And I say, why because you said so? And <laughs> I'm going from that. Well, I said so, then that's it. I'm the authority here, so you do what I say. No explanations needed, no explanations offered, no explanations required. Jesus says, my relationship to my friends, and that's not that way. Jesus gives us explanation. The servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you my friends, for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. Of course, this has Old Testament background to it. One of the uh, people that the New Testament tells us, uh, God called a friend, uh, book of Second Chronicles also says, was Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God. James tells us in James chapter 2. And where does that understanding of Abraham as the friend of God, uh, where does that go back to? Well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 18. You might say friendship was involved in the covenant in some way, but no, actually not. The covenant was God's assertion of lordship over Abraham as his servant. It was still a servant-master relationship. But here in chapter 18, something interesting transpires. In verse 16, it speaks of the men who were the angels that... Um, set out from there, they looked down towards Sodom, Abraham went with them to send them on their way, so they're going down to Sodom to do God's will of devastating Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins and then in verse 17 we have that Yahweh, Yahweh says again, Israel's covenant God shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do so I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, and I just might tell Abraham you know, Abraham you just sit still. You just chill out. You just stay in your tent. I'm going to do what I'm planning to do. And uh, you don't have any need to know. Well, God says, that's not my relationship to Abraham. He may not have need to know, but I want to tell him. Because he's my friend. Abraham is my friend. And friends don't hide things from friends. There is openness of um, consultation. And openness of uh, no, no secrets. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will bless him, for I have chosen him 
that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judgment so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You might say that's all Abraham needed was to have the commandments of God. But you know there's another important thing that Abraham needed to know. He needed not, not only to know what the commandments were, he needed to know something of the nature and character of God. He needed to know something of the ways of God. We talked about this last week in the evening service. Those of you who were there will remember that we need to know about the ways of God every bit as much as the commandments of God. Part of our identity is, as people is to be um, imitators. Again, we are made to imitate God, to be His image. And to know what God does and why God does it is also vitally important to the way we live our lives. And so God is going to tell Abraham exactly what he's going to do. He's going to sweep away Sodom and Gomorrah. He's heard the outcry. It's very grave. And he will do according to that outcry. He's going to come in judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham then turns and says, Should not the judge of all the earth do right? What if there are righteous people there? And he engages in intercessory prayer before the Lord, that the Lord would show mercy. And again, Abraham cannot mercy God. But the whole point of it is that knowing the ways of God, even when God has simply said He decrees the judgment of this people because of the outcry of their sins, God's people don't just say, okay, let that happen, doesn't matter. No! We're a people who know God's ways. And we know God's ways are not ways principally of wrath and judgment. That's something Scripture calls a strange work. Bible never says God delights in the death of the wicked. Scripture says God does not desire the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But God has pleasure in mercy. He delights in mercy. Scripture tells us again and again. So if we know that's the ways of God, the ways of God are mercy, the ways of God are faithfulness, the ways of God are love. Then we as God's people, even in the face of something like, God's going to destroy those wretched people for all of their wretched sins, we're not going to sit back and say, well, good for them. They deserve every bit of the justice that God sets upon them. Now we cry out and say, Lord, you have said, you delight in mercy. We plead for mercy. Why? Because that's the ways of God. And we come to know the ways of God because we're His friends and He's told us those are His ways. And so we enter in with sympathetic prayers, not only for the people who will avert destruction by God's mercy, but for the God who delights in mercy, to show forth His hand of mercy. That's what friends are entitled to know. Something about the heart of God. Something about the ways of God. Something about knowing His heart and His love as His friends. Because He's disclosed that to us. Again, it would be enough for us to just be servants. But God says, no, that's not enough for me. And in a real sense, we don't do what we're called to do as God's people uh, just by knowing the externals. We need to know something about the heart. We need to know something about the ways of God. 
that we might walk in those ways and we might live in the light of those ways and we might pray in the light of those ways and we might serve in the light of those ways and we won't have a fatalistic sense well people are just going to get what they deserve so that's okay just go on and live my life as I please no we enter into God's commission to be light in the midst of the world in which we demonstrate the love of God actively by what we say and what we do and how we convey something of that love in our own love that we engage, that we uh, display as we engage actively with the world in which God's called us to serve Him. And so, folks, there's a sense in which all these things are the bigger picture into which the commandment of Jesus to brotherly love is to flow that we have a God whose love is eternal we have a God whose love is exemplary in the cross of his son we have a God whose love is intimate towards us and hence we have a love that is inclusive as well that as we have been brought into the orbit of his love through union with Jesus that we've come to know and drink deeply of the wells of God's salvation we have a sense that that inclusive love is not just for us to be greedy about it's for us to declare to the world it's for us to, to, to share with others because this love is not the love of a few but it's a broad inclusive love of all the elect of all the people of God and of all the potential people of God nobody should be left out into the cold Nobody not regarded, nobody unloved and uncared for, while there are Christians in the world. Mercy and compassion should flow from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the triune God himself has brought us into the orbit of his own love, without merit, with nothing that we've deserved. And we're to broaden the orbit of our love to include all of his people and all of his potential people who are out there in the world who were once where we were enemies of the cross and now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ and so we're to love one another as he has loved us and that love is to overflow to a lost and needy world it's never just that we're to love in the church that we are we're to love one another it's almost a sense in which in the church which is God's family we learn love in our relationships to one another that love might overflow from us to a world so desperately in need of the gospel it's the way we learn love is in our relationship to one another and it's the way in which we're prepared to engage a world in all of its unloveliness by the fact that we've come to love sometimes unlovely Christians with a patient, forbearing, humble love that seeks to be inclusive and not exclusive. But we seek to be forbearing in love. We seek to be forgiving in love. We seek to be treating one another as we, as God in Christ has treated us, as he has been forbearing to us and forgiving to us. So we are to be forbearing and forgiving to one another. And then as we learn it in the home, in the household of God, we're able to confront a needy world 
on the basis of that same love with which we've been loved by the living God himself. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's go forth to love each other. Let's continue love amongst the brethren. Right in the Hebrew says, continue brotherly love. Don't let it stop. Don't let it cease. Abound in it. Paul says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Because you yourselves have been taught to love one another by God. And yet abound more and more. It's something we always can abound in more and more. And then let that love spill over to a needy world. Because God is a God whose love is all-embracing, all-inclusive, beckoning others to come into the orbit of that love through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's go before him and seek him in prayer. Father, I do pray that something of this concept of love that seemed to emanate from this portion of your word would, would fill our hearts with endless appreciation, endless ability to consider and to contemplating, to think through the enormity of the love with which you've loved us, love that's eternal, love that's exemplary, love that's intimate, love that's inclusive. We pray we will learn the ways of love by what we see in you, what we see in Christ, what we see in the communion of love we've been called to, in the fellowship that we have with you and with your Son through the Gospel. Be pleased to hear our prayers. Be pleased to bless us as a people. Lord, in all things and in every way, we would love one another sincerely and earnestly from the heart as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.